0: Dude, that might as well be the Mockingjay trailer. You guys, how are you guys? How's the coolest, hippest, freshest group of young adults in Denver doing tonight? Hey, turn to somebody around you and give them a high five and compliment them on their hair tonight, huh? Thanks, man. All right, you guys, I wanted to start tonight off uh, with a challenge for you guys, and I'm holding my Bible so you know we're not playing around, all right? This uh, This is from the letter of Philippians. This was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped plant in the province of Philippi, hence the name of the letter, Philippians. This Bible stuff, man, I'm telling you, it's really not that hard. So Apostle Paul, we're gonna pick it up right here in Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Here we go. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. All right, so there are a hundred takeaways that you could take away from this text. I'll just give you one. Here's the gist. There is a discontentment that you can feel in Paul, in all of his writing. You can feel it. He's just got a yearning. He's got a longing for something more that, honestly, all of us can relate with because every person in this room, myself included, we have at a deep level inside of us a discontentment. We are longing. We are Yearning for something more, right? That's a biblical diagnostic of the broken human heart, that we, we know that, that we're not complete, and we know there's something out there that's gonna make us complete. You know, we know there's something more, and we want it. And for a lot of us, and we would never say this out loud, but it's true and it shows by the way that we live our lives, we, we think and live as if that true contentment is like just around the corner. Like as soon as I graduate college, man, or as soon as I'm finally living on my own, or as soon as I quit this job that I hate and I finally get a job that I love, then I'll be content, you know? As soon as I can bench press 315 pounds, man, if I can just get there and put 10 more pounds of muscle on, I will be good to go, if I can just lose 15 pounds, I'll be content. If I could just live by the ocean and surf every day and have a puppy to run with on the beach, I'll be content, you know? That's when I'll get there. As soon as I meet Mr. Wright, as soon as I get that ring on my finger, I'll be content, and it's happily ever after. And then it's as soon as I'm a dad or as soon as I'm a mom and I finally have that family or then as soon as we have this much money in the bank account. And then it's, no, no, as soon as we just have that much money in the bank account and we can take the little chaps to Disney World every year, then we'll be content. You know, as soon as, as, soon as I make this much money in my job and this house that we live in right now, it's good, it'll, it'll work for now. But man, as soon as we get to the next one, as soon as we get there, as soon as we get that car that's just a little bit nicer than mine as soon as i finally get that group of friends as soon as and guys the truth is as long as there's always an as soon as in your life the truth is like you're never going confi- to you never going to find contentment which is strange because all of those things that i listed those are all good things those are all right and incredible and awesome gifts from god that we should pursue and we're lucky if we get to experience but what paul is telling us is that None of those things, no matter how good they are, none of those things are gonna bring about that lasting contentment that will soothe that longing inside of you for something more. And I promise you, if you live your life pursuing lasting fulfillment in any of those things, you will live a frustrating life because you will find over and over again, after every new raise, or every new job, or every new marriage, or every new house, that although it was fun and it brought fulfillment for a season, it was a season and it faded and it left you once again wanting more. And Paul is saying, Man, these are good things and I'm pursuing these good things. But there's only one thing that's gonna do it for me. None of those things compare to knowing Jesus. Listen to him right here. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's saying, man, I trade all of those things in a heartbeat. I count it all as lost. I'll walk away from everything, Jesus, if it means that I can get you. Because the thing is, man, you can get your dream list and you can get your dream spouse and your dream job with the dream house and the dream salary and live a life with awesome blessings from God. But if you miss Jesus in all of that, like you've lost the game. Who cares what you do and who cares what you have if at the end of it, you don't have Jesus? There is one thing, and Paul understands this on a level that we can, we can learn from. There is one thing that's going to satisfy that deep longing that each of us feel tonight. And that's this, a vibrant relationship with the living God. Now, notice I, notice I didn't say going to church. And I, I didn't say talking the Christian talk. And I didn't say knowing things about God. I said a vibrant relationship with the living God. And so here's my challenge for you tonight and for, for this week and for the rest of your lives is will you pursue it? Will you work for it? Because we talked about two weeks ago, that kind of work is not religion because religion is doing work and and earning a right standing in front of God and obeying him so that you will be accepted by him. But the gospel of Jesus says that you're already accepted. All right, so that work now becomes discipline fueled by delight that you put into knowing Jesus more, that you put into that relationship because come on, any relationship that you have that's worth having takes work. My relationship with my wife doesn't just happen. My relationship with my best buddies, that doesn't just happen, that takes work. That takes a pursuit on both ends. And he's pursuing you, will you pursue him? That's my question, because there's a pastor in Dallas that I love to listen to. He says this, nobody accidentally stumbles into godliness. In other words, you're not gonna wake up one morning three years from now and realize that you just, you got closer to Jesus and that you're stronger in your faith by doing nothing. That takes work. You're not gonna accidentally become more godly, and if God is an infinite well and an infinite source of life and peace to know and joy to have and vitality and of God to know, then the truth is we're always gonna want more. We're always gonna be straining towards more of God, and to use Paul's language, press on. He says this, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken a hold of me. And you see that kind of language all throughout Paul's writing. Press on for more. I strain for more. I fight for more. Your growth in your relationship with the creator of the universe does not happen in the hour that you sit in church every week. It doesn't happen then. It happens in the much more gritty, much more difficult, much longer arenas of your life that exist between church services when it's on you. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, meaning that if you want to know God, you can now by looking at Jesus. Jesus came as God's representation, complete with a personality and a humanity so that you can know him and love him as intimately as you know your best friend. Because of him, you have access to God now, but that doesn't just simply happen. If you want more, You gotta press on for more. And my question of the week for you and my challenge is, will you do that? If you want more of him, and guys, I promise you, there is more of him than what you know right now. There will always be, because he is infinite. So will you go for it? That's my challenge, and I know that's kind of a long intro, but that's honestly, that's the takeaway for the night right there, because uh, for the next 20 to 25 minutes, all I'm really gonna do is just brag about God to you guys because tonight we're talking about the humility of Jesus and uh, I've been like a little kid, like giddy all day. I've I've been so excited to give this talk tonight and like understand this, God does not need me to brag for him. He's God, he's got a universe and heavenly hosts that can show off his glory. I just simply, I simply get to do it and so my prayer for us tonight is that we would simply just admire and be in awe of how awesome of a king we have in Jesus Christ and how he models humility for us. So let's pray real quick and then we'll get into it. Father God, would you show us this week what it looks like, God, in each of our lives for us to press on, not out of religion, but out of a desire to have more of you and to know you more. Show us what that looks like because that can be so hard sometimes. And God, my one prayer for the rest of the night is that you might just amaze us with how awesome you are. That's it, that's all I want. I pray all of that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so you know how it's kind of like an under-exaggeration for me to tell you that Peyton Manning is good at football? That's a bit of an under-exaggeration. Like if I were to say, yeah, LeBron James, he's good at basketball. (laughs) <laughs> that's an under-exaggeration. Well, multiply that by a million, billion, trillion, and you don't even come close to how much of an under-exaggeration it is for me to say this, that the Son of God is humble. I'm serious. He's been blowing my mind this week, and if we're gonna give a sermon and talk about how um, hum- humble Jesus is, we should probably define humility before we get going, and Eric Parks gave a sermon on humility in Big Church a few weeks ago. Big Church. <laughs> I still call it big church, like I'm in Sunday school and that's where my mom and dad go, despite the fact that I'm 26. <laughs> in big church, like a month ago, Eric Parks defined humility like this. Humility is not thinking less of you. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not downplaying you and downplaying your God-given gifts and talents and saying, yeah, no, no, guys, I yeah, I suck at that. That's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Jesus, as we know, was fully human and fully God. And in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we learn that Jesus was there in the beginning. That's the idea of the Trinity, that in the beginning was God, but God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, each with an essence of deity, yet one God. That's tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning one, tri, unity, Trinity, right, it's that simple. Don't think about the concept of the Trinity too hard or your brain will explode. It's ridiculous. You'll at least get a headache and we don't want that. All we're gonna do tonight is not unpack the theology of the Trinity but say that, okay, for our sake tonight, we just need to know that Jesus was there in the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is eternal, meaning that nobody created him. Jesus was nobody's idea. Nobody gave birth to Jesus. He was present before the creation of the universe. And the Gospel of John starts this way. In the beginning was the Word. And you see how Word there is capitalized? Anytime you see Word with a capital W, it's talking about Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, or Jesus, was with God. And and the Word and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So sometimes I like to imagine like, what it would have been like to be back at the very start, in the beginning of Red Rocks Church, when it was just a bunch of guys in a room with a dream, and that's it. Before it was like the God-orchestrated movement that has affected so many lives, including mine, I just sometimes think it's fun to think back to like, what would have been like to be back there when it was just five to 10 people sitting in a room praying. All right, now take that concept, and I know this is kind of funny, but I take that concept and I apply that to the Trinity. Back when there was no universe or humankind or even light, it was just God in his threefold state, perfectly content, not lonely, all right, not in need of company, just nothing but God. And then all of a sudden, out of the darkness, he speaks, let there be light. And there is, in the form of a sun and stars and galaxies. And all he had to do was speak it and they appeared. Now think about that power for a second, all right? Do you know how big the sun is? Do you know how big? Like, I'm gonna show you, all right? So, and this is straight from a, a sermon that a pastor down in Atlanta, Georgia named Louis Giglio gave. Um, so this is his stuff, but man, it's just It's so eye-opening and gives us such perspective to how big God is, and I wanted to show you guys this. You see this golf ball right here? This golf ball for us is gonna represent planet Earth for the next five minutes, and I even drew Earth on here. (laughs) On my desk this morning. It's really hard to draw Earth on a golf ball with a fatty Sharpie, but I did it just for you guys, okay? This is gonna represent Earth. Now, if the Earth was a golf ball, how big is the sun? I'll put this right here, see if that'll stay. If the earth is a golf ball, how big is the sun? If the earth is a golf ball, the sun, imagine a ball right next to this thing that's 15 feet tall, all right, which is about, if you can see these three speakers here and some of the lights right above me, that's about 15 feet. Imagine a ball that's that size. Do we have a picture of the sun? I think we do. That's how big the sun would be if the earth was the size of a golf ball. And we have to be careful because that can be like, oh, that's so pretty. The sun's so beautiful. But, but keep in mind that that's a burning ball of hydrogen undergoing a constant star-wide nuclear reaction, like a million hydrogen bombs going off every single second. And tonight, we need to thank God that we're not any closer to the sun than we are right now because it would literally melt our faces off. Okay. <laughs> So now what do you do with the fact that that sun right there is one of the smallest stars in the Milky Way galaxy? Our Milky Way galaxy, you can go to the next picture. This is the Milky Way, all right? That's not the universe, by the way. This is just, as Louis Giglio would say, this is our little subdivision, our little cul-de-sac in the universe. That's our galaxy, and it's one of billions and billions of other galaxies in the known universe. All right, and just to give you an idea about how big it is, from the left to the right, is the distance of 100,000 light years. In other words, if you were on the left side and you wanted to travel to the right side, all you have to do is go the speed of light, 670 million miles an hour, travel that fast for 100,000 years, and you'd be at the other side. That's how big that thing is, and that's just one galaxy. And we were talking about this at lunch earlier, um, and I've heard like a lot of people say, man, Isn't the universe a little big if its primary purpose is just to be a home for you and me? I was like, yeah, yeah, if if the universe's primary purpose was simply just to be a home for our planet and for you and for me, let me see if I can see you on there. I can't, I can't even see Colorado. (laughs) But if the universe's primary purpose is to be a home for us, I think it might be a little bit too big. And I think that might be a little arrogant for us to claim that that's the purpose of the universe. But what if the primary purpose of the universe was to show off the glory and majesty of the God who created it? If that's the purpose, then I think the universe is just about the right size. And I want to do this. I want to look at one more star just because we're nerdy tonight and we can, all right? This will... This will blow your mind. This is stupid how big this star is. I can't put it up on the screen because it wouldn't do us any good. This is the largest star that scientists have discovered in the known universe. So if the earth was a golf ball and you were to go to New York York City, has anybody ever been to New York City and stood underneath the Empire State Building? There it is. And kind of looked up at that thing. Pretty impressive. It's 1,454 feet tall. That's roughly five football fields. So imagine you're in New York City and you're in front of the Empire State Building and you take your golf ball that's going to represent earth for you and you put it on the sidewalk. I'll put it right there in front of the Empire State Building and step back and you hope nobody runs into you in the busyness of New York City. And you look up and you see the Empire State Building right there. Now imagine 19 more Empire State Buildings stacked on top of that. And imagine a ball sitting next to your golf ball that was that height, that had that diameter right there. That's almost the height of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet. That's the size of the biggest star that scientists know about right now. Like, that is insane. That's absolutely crazy to me. And here's the craziest part, is stars like that Many of those, billions of those, make up the billions of beautiful galaxies in the known universe, including the Milky Way. And scriptures tell us, and this is what gets me, that God opens his mouth and things like that come out of his mouth. That God speaks those things into being. Psalm 33, six says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He breathes out stars like that. It's funny thinking back to all the prayers that I've prayed trying to counsel God on my life and give God advice and guidance. God doesn't need my advice. And the psalmist goes on to say that he gathers the waters of the sea into jars and he puts the deep into storehouses. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever flown over an ocean. Uh, back in college I flew from San Francisco to Australia and. We went almost 600 miles an hour for 15 hours straight and that's how long it took us to get over an ocean and it was a red eye so it was through the night and I I had a window seat and I loved the window seat and I stayed up the entire night and just stared down at this black abyss that was the Pacific Ocean. Wondering how massive it was and wondering what was underneath it, beneath those waters. Wondering at this God who according to the Bible puts the deep like that into jars and you feel small in those kind of moments. Not insignificant, but you feel small. My buddies and I used to go night surfing in Laguna Beach. That's me. I'm kidding, that's not me. <laughs> Do you have any idea how badly I wish I could say that that's me, night surfing? When I say my buddies and I would go night surfing, we would paddle out and we would try not to die. Like if we came back in alive, it was, it was a successful night. And I, I, like, I remember back to one night, sitting out in the water, on my board, as the water just kinda goes up and down, the sky's black, the water's black, and just wondering when the next massive set is gonna roll in and just wreck me. And paddling around and wondering what, if anything, was swimming around underneath me, you know? And there's only like one or two words that you can describe a feeling like that, eerie and haunting. But I'll be honest with you guys, I love, I love those feelings because it's in those moments that I, I understand how small I am. And I gain a little bit more perspective on how big and powerful and mysterious God is. And here's what's been blowing my mind all week about this big and powerful God. And here we get to the humility thing, all right? That this same God who stores the waters of the sea into jars and breathes constellations out of his mouth and hangs galaxies across the universe, that that same God, is the God who let a 16-year-old, imperfect teenage girl named Mary give birth to him and then raise him. Like the Alpha and the Omega subjected his life to the care of a flawed human being who, of course, is bound to make mistakes raising him that didn't stop him from doing it, and he came into the world not like through a hospital or the St. Julian Hotel of the time. He came in the humble route of a manger full of straw in a dirty shack with smelly animals around him. Like the God who, according to Psalm 147, counts the stars and calls each of them by name, is the same God who came to this planet as an infant and had to learn how to talk. That he went from speaking matter into existence, speaking things out of nothing into existence, that same God had to learn how to pronounce his letters and say mama and dada. The God who is the author of all things had to learn how to read and write. The God who engineered everything we know and created the laws of physics let Joseph teach him how to swing a hammer and nail two planks of wood together. John Eldridge He says this, he who never tires, never slumbers, accepted the need for sleep every night. How deep was the exhaustion that kept him dozing right through the gale, waves crashing over the boat. Jesus ate every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He needed to, he had to trim his toenails. He who clothes the lilies of the field with greater glory than Solomon's splendor had to do his laundry, squatting riverside, rinsing the dust from the worn garments like any other peasant. And John, he goes on to make an interesting point about the fact that Jesus had to walk everywhere he went. So in the Bible, when we're reading the Gospels, and we read little phrases like um, in John chapter four that Jesus left Judea and went once more to Galilee, we kinda skip over that and rarely stop to think about the fact that that was a 70 mile journey by foot, not by car, by foot. So we're talking a three to four day journey depending on the weather that the God who is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at all times, always, accepted the need to walk from place to place just as fast as his two sore, blistered feet would let him go. But my favorite of everything, and, and Eldridge goes on to point this out, is how Jesus came onto the scene and made his grand entrance to start his ministry. So we know that, like for the first 28 or so years of his life, we don't really have much of a record on what Jesus did. But when he started his three-year ministry, this is, how he made, this is how he made his grand entrance onto the scene. In Matthew chapter three, we pick it up. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. (laughs) People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. All right, so you've got hundreds and hundreds of people flocking to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, and Jesus just takes his place in the crowd with everybody else. He doesn't announce his entrance. He doesn't declare like in a James Earl Jones Mufasa voice, like, I am the Messiah, and I am here. Like, he doesn't do any of that. He shows up riverside with everybody else and waits his turn in line until he slowly gets to the front of the line. And John the Baptist is there and he's been baptizing people by the hundreds all day, you know, like psh, 691, go, psh, 692, you're good, 693. And then he sees Jesus in the front of the line and John, of all the hundreds of people there, John understands who he is. John sees him and goes, not in a million years, could I ever baptize you, you need, to, you need to baptize me. And Jesus literally is like, no, it's cool, this needs to be done to fulfill all that is righteous. Baptize me. And, and what amazes me about this is, con- like contrast this to historical figures that we know um, who have thought that they were God's gift to planet Earth to save the world. Like right now, if you were to get on a plane and go to North Korea, you would see statues around the country of the Kim family, the ruling power in North Korea. And the point of those statues is to like remind the citizens who like the saviors of the nation are, right? Like Hitler did the exact same thing back in Nazi Germany, Joseph Stalin did it with the Soviet Union. Saddam Hussein did it in Iraq. All of the emperors of Jesus' time would have idols erected of themselves all over the empire to remind people who they were. Their faces would be on all the coins and all the currency so that everything would point to them. And, and even the emperors, like you see this in the movie Gladiator, when they made their, their triumphant entries onto the scene, Like they'd be on a chariot waving to everybody and like most of the people there would be paid to be there to make the emperor feel special and feel admired. And it's just like this sick desire to be worshiped by people. This sick desire to have people bow down to you and think that you're something more than a human being. Yet the only king in the history of the universe who has ever deserved to have people worship him or bow down to him showed up in a crowd to somebody else's church service and waited his turn in line. I don't know what you guys think about that, but that makes me proud that that is our king, the star maker who waited his turn in line and let a human being baptize him. And Ben, you guys can come back out, but me and the rest of the YA staff were having a conversation the other day and the question came up because it was in a book that we're all reading. If you were to die right now, I know it sounds morbid, don't worry, if you were to die right now, how positive are you on a scale of zero to 100 that you would go to heaven? Which is really kind of an interesting question, and there's a solid chunk of my life, and a few years even while I was a Christian, that I would have answered something a lot less than 100%, but today, and I can say this with all integrity, stand up in front of you and say that, man, if whenever I go, if it is tonight in a car wreck, or if it's 70 years from now, as an old man playing golf, (laughs) that I'm 100% that I'm gonna have eternity with God. And breathe out, all right? There might be some of you who think that is so arrogant for you to say, that you are 100% sure that if you're standing in front of the king of the universe, that he's gonna open his doors and invite you in for eternity. And here's what I'd say back to you. You'd be absolutely right if my 100% certainty was based on my abilities and my performance to impress God enough that he's going to let me in. If it was based on my ability to earn my way to heaven, then yeah, that's a bit arrogant. But if it was based not on me, but rather on somebody else's ability, namely Jesus and his ability to get me to heaven, there's nothing arrogant about that at all. If you remember our definition of humility, humility is thinking of you less. And if I'm thinking of me and my abilities, which suck, it feels good just to say that out loud, I'm just saying it, focus less on that and focus more on Jesus and his abilities to get me to heaven, then that's falling right in line with that definition of humility that we laid out. And Jesus represents this, and this is our last scripture of the night, Philippians 2, six and seven. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. All right, you can leave that up. Jesus, who was there in the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit before there was anything, before there was a universe, before that whole thing was spoken into existence, right? He was there, yet he, does, he doesn't consider any of that equality with God as something to be grasped. He doesn't consider that as something to hold on to or something to hold over us. Rather, he lays it down and he comes for us, star maker, come to save us. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And that was an incredible act of humility. Humility for Jesus there was him thinking less of him and more of us, and so our response in humility is us thinking less of us and thinking more of him and his righteousness and his perfection and his goodness and his plan to get us to have a relationship with him and to get us to heaven forever. Because the more we dwell on that, man, the more we fall in love with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more that we get set free from we. And I know grammatically that's incorrect, but I promise you there is nothing better in this world than you being set free from you. Because think about it, what does that mean when you screw up? Because I'm thinking somebody in this room needs to hear this tonight, and by somebody I mean everybody because we all screw up. And we all are familiar with the shame and the guilt that comes after we do something we know, man, we shouldn't have done that. I am so familiar of being in the aftermath of big screw ups and the pain and the shame and the guilt and the dirtiness and the darkness and the anger And it seems like the humble thing in that moment to do is to be like, okay, bring on the guilt because I deserve it. Bring on the condemnation. Bring on the guilt and the condemnation. I deserve it. I should be punished for this, but that's not humble at all. That's not you thinking less of you. That's a weird Twisted form of pride that's got you in a downward spiral, thinking only of you. When in Romans chapter 5, it says that, no, when you were still a sinner, that's when Christ saved you. And because of the blood that he shed on the cross, because he made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant, because of the blood that he shed on the cross, you can now stand in front of God completely justified. Completely justified, meaning God's going to look at you and he's not going to see any of the sin. He's not going to see your past, your present or catch this, your future sin, because of the humility of Jesus, God will now look at you and he'll see the perfection of his son. And if you're anything like me, I need to fight, and I mean fight, for the humility to think less of me and how good I am at screwing up and how good I am at falling short. And to think more of Jesus and how good he is at saving me from that. Because he's pretty darn good at that. And not only is there no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus, and not only will you stand in front of the living God and he will see you as completely justified, but that living God now says, I want a vibrant relationship with you. The one who collects the depths of the ocean into jars says, let's you and I, let's you and I get to know each other. How about you take all of that effort that you've been putting into not screwing up and you put that effort into just knowing me more? Because I gotta believe everything else will follow if we get that first. That's the star maker's invitation to you guys tonight. And we're gonna sing this first song, um, Come to Me. Um, This can just be a time where we can all just sit and my prayer for you would be that... um, away from the hecticness of your lives, that this would be a chance for you to actually dwell upon the fact that the one who creates the galaxies and the oceans wants to be in a relationship with you. He's giving you permission to think about that tonight and to not worry about anything else. Give yourself permission. Give yourself the permission to dwell on him tonight and not think about anything else. Heavenly Father, God, Help us, help us with our humility to think less of us and more of you. We love you so much and we give you this time, amen.